Thank you, band. You must have done a lot better this time because first service didn't clap, so. <laughs> Is that what that means? I don't know what that means. Anyway, thanks, band. That was a lot of fun. Uh, good morning again. Uh, like Chris and Peter said, my name is Spencer. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, we're really glad you're here, especially if you are a visitor uh, or you've been checking us out for uh, a few weeks. Uh, we are really glad that you are here. We know everyone's busy. We know it's a beautiful uh, fall morning out there, and so we do appreciate you uh, joining us uh, this morning. We right now are in a sermon series in the book of Galatians. So uh, Galatians is a New Testament letter, so it's written after Jesus' death and resurrection. And then after Jesus' death and resurrection, he sends his disciples out into the world to spread this good news, to spread the gospel that he is the Son of God. He did die for the sins of the world, and that through trust in him alone, uh, salvation is possible. Forgiveness of sin is possible. Resurrection uh, and eternal life is possible. And so at that time, so uh, the, the, the church is expanding, the gospel is expanding. Uh, there's a guy named Paul who was a religious ruler who was against Jesus and against the Christians, and he actually was persecuting uh, Christians. And so he was uh, murdering them. He was having them dragged out of their homes and thrown into prison. And as he was on another city to do the same thing, as he was breathing out murderous threats towards Jesus' people, uh, Jesus showed up. He knocked Paul off his horse, knocked him on his butt, and saved him and said, Paul, you're going to be uh, my servant, and I'm going to send you to the non-Jewish people. I'm going to send you to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. And this guy, Paul, God used him to plant churches all throughout Asia Minor. He went on multiple missionary trips, planted many churches. And uh, this is a letter from him back to some of those churches. So Galatia is a region. And so this letter is written by Paul, by, by the, the church planter, the, the pastor, back to some of his churches that he had to leave. And so uh, it's, it's, a, it's a letter. It's written from uh, the guy that planted their church, a guy that was their pastor for a while, a guy that deeply, deeply loves them. And he's writing back to them because he cares for them, and they're be believing uh, some, some false doctrine. They're not believing a true gospel. They, they're being pulled away from Jesus Christ, and so Paul writes in, in very strong language back to uh, these people that he loves very dearly. So kind of the context of what's going on is Galatians is written just a few decades after Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and so this, this area of Galatia is, is mostly Gentile people, mostly non-Jewish people, and so uh, these new churches are just wrestling with what does it mean to be a Christian. They're, they're wrestling with how uh, ethnicity, tradition, the Jewish law, how all of those things relate or don't relate to being a Christian. And so what happened in our passage yesterday, or last week, that actually butts up right against uh, this week's passage, it's, a, it's one long train of thought, one long story, but we had to break it up into two sections for the sake of time. What's happening in last week's section, so it's Paul's writing a letter, and in this letter he's, he's uh, kind of sharing a story about something that happened. So Peter, one of Jesus' main disciples, one of, uh, one of the early church uh, leaders, was eating with Gentiles. So Peter, a Jew, eating with Gentiles, which might not to you seem like a big deal, but in the law, in the Old Testament law, it was a very big deal. So, so Peter's breaking or not caring about purification laws, about 
about uh, dietary laws, about food laws, about entering Gentiles' homes, uh, lots of those things. And the reason, Paul, P, uh, the reason Peter is doing this is because he knew that Christians are no longer under the Old Testament. They're no longer under the Old Covenant, the, the Old Law. So he's okay with it. He's celebrating it. It's, it's public. But then some Jewish Christians show up. And these Jewish Christians, whether they're actually wolves and trying to hurt people or whether they're just really misinformed, they show up and they say, well, actually, no. You are saved through faith alone in Jesus Christ, but the way you stay saved is through the law. The way you stay saved is through becoming and staying Jewish. And so when these people show up, Peter has fear of man issues. He, he, he is fearful, he is cowardly, and he then withdraws himself from these Gentile Christians. And so what happened in our passage last week is that Paul actually confronts Peter. And he, what he could have done, is actually we've got a, a photograph of, of Peter and Paul from first century. Um, what actually happens, Paul could have taken Peter aside and said, hey, bro, dude, this, you're, you're really hurting people. Like, this is really preaching the wrong gospel. You're communicating to the Gentile believers that they're not staying saved or that they have to become Jewish or that they have to follow all these laws. And that's just not true. And you haven't been teaching that. So he could have said that. But it's so important to Paul that he publicly rebukes him. It's so important to the heart of the Christian faith. It's so important to the foundation of the gospel that Peter publicly is rebuked by Paul. And what's really interesting is that Paul could have said, and all these would have been true, he could have said to Peter, he could have said, stop living by fear of man. Fear God instead of these Jewish leaders, which would have been true. Or Paul could have said, stop feeling so superior to these Gentile Christians. Or he could have said, stop thinking your ethnicity as, as a Jewish person is better than these Gentiles. Or stop acting as if eating and drinking with Gentiles is that big a deal. Because you know it's not. All of these Paul could have said, and they would have been true. But what Paul does say is that Peter's biggest problem is he's not believing the gospel. He said all those other things, fear of man issue, hypocrisy, backsliding, even maybe hints of racism, that is not his biggest problem. All those are just symptoms or outpourings of him not believing the gospel. And, it, and uh, so Paul tells him, he says, you're not acting in step with the gospel that you preach. You're acting like a hypocrite. And he even ends, so the verse right before our passage today, he ends by saying, if you, Peter, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, you're Jewish, but you don't follow the Jewish laws, then why, how can you force the Gentiles to live like the Jews? So that's what has just preceded our passage today. Paul publicly confronting Peter about not just some sinful uh, interactions between people or hypocrisy or backsliding or uh, fear of man issues, but he says ultimately what's leading to all this is you're not really believing the gospel. And so Paul today continues his argument, pounding home the doctrine, the truth that salvation comes through faith alone, not through being Jewish, not through following purification laws or, or food laws or sacrificial works of the Old Testament law, 
but salvation comes only through faith alone. So today's uh, sermon title is going to be Justification by Faith. Most of your Bibles, that's even the heading right above uh, Galatians 2, 15. Justification meaning uh, declared innocence or guilt being removed from someone in a court. And we'll, we'll talk a lot more about justification in a second. So you can uh, either read in your inserts or the passage will be up here on the screen. We're going to read from uh, Galatians 2, 15 through 21. All right, starting in verse 15 here. We ourselves are Jews by birth. So uh, Paul talking to Peter and then other Jewish people who are listening. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor, sorry about that, but in, if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ in a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For, th- through the law, for through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died. For no purpose. All right, before we actually jump into our passage, we're seeing a bunch of words that maybe you are unfamiliar with, or maybe even know these words, but uh, Galatians use them, uses them a little bit differently. And so just to define some words we're going to be uh, using over and over again. So first of all, Jew. We, we hear the word Jew a lot in Galatians here. When, when you see the word Jew, just think the, the people of God, the, the, the people group that God covenanted with in the Old Testament. So the nation of Israel, they used to be called the the Hebrew people and are now uh, Jewish people. And then a Gentile is just anyone who's not a Jew, right? So you could be Greek, you could be Roman, you could be African, but it doesn't matter. It's everyone besides Jews are called Gentiles. And then this big important word that we're going to see over and over again today and uh, also later on in Galatians is this word justification. So this word justification or being justified means the acquittal of a guilty person before God's judgment seat. So just as we read, Chris read right before we uh, went into worship, apart from God, we are sinful. Apart from Christ, we are evil. We, We have sinned, thus we are guilty before a holy God who is also a judge. So the act of justification is the removal of that guilt being declared innocent. The gracious act, so justification is, is, is a single thing. It happens just once. So we're not justified today, and then we need to get justified again in a week when we sin. But it's a single act, a gracious act, a gift of God by which he declares a sinner righteous, a sinner innocent or holy or, or good, solely through faith in Jesus Christ. And then we're also going to see uh, the phrase works of the law or the word law come up uh, in our passage today. It's going to come up another four or five times later in Galatians as well. But whenever you think about 
works of the law or, or the law. Just think of uh, the Old Testament law or, or the Ten Commandments or the Jewish purification and dietary and ritualistic and sacrificial and food laws that were required uh, in the Old Testament. Works that God uh, required that sinners never were able to fully do. And again, we'll unpack all four of these. So hopefully this helps us uh, use the same language and think of uh, the same thing when we use these words today. All right, so Paul continues his argument to Peter. So this is an extension from what we saw last week. And Paul is arguing to Peter and to uh, letting the rest of the Galatian churches hear this and us in extension as well. Paul says two times at the beginning of this passage, you are not justified by works of the law. You are not made innocent. You are not made righteous by doing works of the law, by following purification and dietary and sacrificial, etc., those type of laws. And Peter says this twice, emphasizing its great importance. Paul's reminding Peter and the whole church, and us in extension, of the core of the gospel. We are not justified. We're not made innocent. We're not made righteous through following purification laws like they kind of were in the Old Testament. We're not justified by making continual animal sacrifices. We're not justified by eating a specific diet, nor are we justified by doing ceremonial or cultic rituals. But we're justified. Christians, we're made righteous through believing in Jesus Christ alone. So for many of us who didn't grow up ethnically Jewish, this list is kind of like, well, I'm not really tempted when I sin to like slit the throat of a dove, right? Or when I eat bacon or when I, you know, wear, wear a shirt with multiple, multiple fabrics, I'm not thinking, oh, God's mad at me. I need to repent or I need to do something. So what, so what I'm going to do is we're going to look at some laws, quote-unquote laws, or, or just good things that we're tempted. So similarly with, with uh, the, the church, churches in Galatia, uh, we're tempted to believe that these type of laws or these type of good things are what actually what justify us before God. Or maybe, not even that, but we think, okay, I'm saved by faith alone, but the way I stay saved, the way that I stay in, in God's good graces, the way, I, uh, the way that I, yeah, stay, stay saved or stay um, close to God is through following these, these good things. So what is the false gospel that we're tempted to believe that kind of goes against this doctrine of uh, justification through faith? So just to be clear before I give this list, uh, all these things are good things. All these things are great things that, that should be in our lives, at least to some extent. Yet, we have to be clear, these are not things that make us righteous. These are not things that make us pleasing in God's sight. But they're, but they're natural responses out of us already being justified. There's a big difference between I, I, I pray to God so that he will love me and forgive me of my sins. Or I pray because I have been forgiven. I want to because I can because I know I'm accepted. There's, there's a big difference. So all these, all these things, good things, yet they're not what save us nor what keep us saved. And we're very tempted to believe it. Whether we actually say we believe it or we just kind of live out that it that uh, if I'm not reading my Bible every day, God's probably pretty ticked at me. Or if I don't, you know, take a theology class every few years, 
God is, is, is more distant from me and I'm probably uh, not as forgiven or not as pure or not as righteous. So speaking to us specifically, how about the church, we are not justified. We're not made righteous, nor do we stay saved through things like church attendance. We're not justified through volunteering inside and outside of our church. We're not justified through tithing or giving money to our church. We're not saved through having great personal quiet times or great Bible studies and prayer at 6 a.m. We're not justified through things like baptism or confirmation or taking communion. We're not justified by caring deeply about important social causes, nor are we justified or nor, nor do we stay saved by becoming a church member or by being morally better than our neighbor or by abstaining from bad things nor are we justified by knowing our Bibles really well or theology. A really sneaky false doctrine or, or, or false gospel that we're tempted to believe, and if, if, if you have been around so far in Galatians or if you've read all of Galatians, one of Paul's big things is he's pushing against false gospels. So not just kind of like secondary doctrine about like, what should a worship service look like? Or what are the end times exactly going to be like? Or how should we live among unbelievers? Kind of things that Christians can maybe disagree on. But rather, Paul is, is, is honing in on and again and again saying, these are false gospels, false centers of our faith that are not really obvious. You know, an obvious one like, actually Jesus was an alien or Jesus wasn't God or Jesus didn't rise from the grave or there's salvation through a different prophet or something like that, those are much more easier, much more easy for, for Christians to reject because they're so obviously untrue. But we're seeing lots of these kind of false, more sneaky, subtle, false gospels seep into the church, and Paul has really strong language for them. And one of them, we are tempted to believe, is essentially something like Christian karma. And I put, I put Christian in quotation marks because it actually isn't Christian at all, but there's this kind of idea of karma that kind of even sneaks its way into the church. So if you don't know what karma is, this phrase kind of describes it well. Karma has no menu. You get served what you deserve. Or essentially just you, you, uh, you get what's coming to you. So if you do good, good works, the universe or God will reward you for it. If you do bad things, you're going to get punished. And there's a kind of a Christian, not really Christian, but a, a version of this karma that sneaks into our churches, sneaks into our hearts, where we actually believe that if we work harder at doing these good things, this list that I just described, then we're actually closer to God. We're more saved. He's, he's even more pleased with us. We're more righteous than last week when I didn't do, do those things. But at its core, it's, that's just base. At, at its base, at its core, it just works righteousness. I work harder to receive more and more salvation or justification. And Galatians is writing against these type of false gospels. So karma says, I'm good with God because I've obeyed him. Whereas the gospel says, I'm good with God because of Jesus. Karma says that you're going to get what you deserve. When you sin, life's going to get really hard for you. Or when you do something wrong, God's going to punish you, and, and bad stuff's going to happen. Where the gospel says that Jesus got what you and I deserved. 
Jesus took the punishment that you and I deserved. The idea of karma is very attractive because it's, it's similar to the majority of our relationships in real life. Or just kind of most of reality, right? If you jump off a building, there's a negative consequence. You do something stupid, you're going to break your leg. If you, you know, cheat on your taxes, you, you might go to jail. So those are kind of like obvious things we see in real life as well as most of our relationships. If you're a jerk to a friend or to a parent or a classmate, bad things are probably going to happen. If you're nice, good things are probably going to happen. So we can kind of understand how this, how this sneaks in. But rather the gospel is the opposite of that. And the gospel is such good news for sinners. If you think you're really good, the gospel is not as good of news. But if you realize you're a sinner, if you realize that what I should get for, for being such an evil person, for, for hurting so many people, for always being selfish and prideful and arrogant and hostile towards God, what I should get if karma was real is lots of punishment. So the gospel is such good news for people who, who realize that they really are sinners. Christians, we are justified. We are made righteous. We're declared innocent, not through karma, not through doing more good deeds than bad deeds, but only through faith in Jesus Christ. We're not made innocent. We're not made righteous by kind of just tipping the scales of karma, by doing more good deeds than bad deeds, but rather only through faith in Christ. So it's pretty clear in Galatians so far that justification comes only through faith in Christ. But you might be wondering the how. Like, how exactly does this happen? How do I become innocent because I know I'm guilty? What, what's actually going on there? How do sins get forgiven? How are we made guiltless and pure and innocent and clean and righteous if we're not that? What, what's going on? Does God kind of just forgive and forget? Which maybe is good advice for like a four-year-old, but us as adults, we know that it's, it's not that simple. And if you have been on the receiving end of, of suffering or abuse or if you're a victim or if you have enemies that have hurt you or even people close to you that have hurt you, the idea that God just forgets that is, is, is not actually a good thought, right? It's, it's really, God just says, my abuser, the, the person that hurt me, the person that betrayed me, neglected me, it means God just forgets what they, what they did. No punishment at all. So you might be asking these really important, personal, real questions about how do we just get declared righteous? How do we be declared innocent? Someone has to pay for this hurt, this evil, this suffering, this abuse that I've received, you might be saying. And the way that this happens, the way that justification happens is through faith in Jesus Christ. There's this doctrine called imputation that says that something that's foreign to us, something that's outside of us is given to us and it's counted as our own. So sometimes this doctrine is called the great exchange or uh, where it says Jesus' perfect innocence, Jesus' perfection, innocence, and righteousness is imputed to us, is given to us, and is considered as our own. And so what happens in justification is that we give all of our unrighteousness, we give all of our sin, all of our guilt, and Jesus takes that on himself. And he doesn't just do that, but he also then gives us 
his righteousness. He gives us his, his perfection, his innocence. So this powerful and beautiful doctrine of imputation is that one's attributes are given to another. Christ's righteousness, his perfection, is imputed to us. It's credited to us. It's given to us as something we now own and we possess. Just such a beautiful doctrine, such, such a powerful truth that we don't see any other place. Where else do we see someone following all the rules and laws saying to someone who's guilty of all the rules and laws, I'll take their punishment. I've been perfect, but I'll go to prison for them. I'll receive the beating for them. I'll give up everything I have to pay back their debt. We never see this, right? Martin Luther calls this the great exchange where, where Christ gives us his righteousness in exchange for our sin and guilt. Martin Luther, one of the reformers, writes, that is the mystery which is rich in divine grace to sinners, whereby, wherein by a wonderful exchange our sins are no longer ours, but Christ's, and the righteousness of Christ, not Christ's, but ours. He has emptied himself of his righteousness that he might clothe us with it and fill us with it. And he has taken our evils upon himself that he might deliver us from them in the same manner as he grieved and suffered in our sins and was confounded in the same manner. We rejoice and glory in his righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says the same thing. For our sake, because he loves us. We saw that earlier on in our passage today, because of his great love for us, for our sake, God made him, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin. Christ was perfect. Christ really was innocent. Christ really was fully righteous so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. I want the church, do we believe that? If you're brand new to Hiawatha or you're not a Christian, I ask you too, do you believe that? Jesus invites you to believe that. He invites you to, to give him all your, all your filth, all your brokenness, all your bad deeds, all your evil thoughts and impure motives by trusting in him, and he will give you forgiveness. He will give you his righteousness. And Christian too, do you believe that? Do you really believe that your filth, your brokenness, your impurity, your, your abuse, your sin, were all put on Christ on the cross? And do you believe that Jesus' perfection, his righteousness, his sinlessness, his holiness, his purity are given to you? That that's who you are now if you're in Christ. That's your identity now. Do you believe that? What the works of the law had tried to do, Jesus actually does. So let's go back. Let's look at one of our slides from before and see how Jesus is not just what the law was pointing ahead to, but he actually fulfilled the law itself. So before we, we, when we started this sermon, we looked at how we're justified not through works of the law. So not through things like following the purification laws, but rather Jesus is the one who cleanses us of our sin. Jesus is the one who makes us pure. We're not justified by making continual animal sacrifices over and over again, 
but rather Jesus is the one final permanent sacrifice. If you read the New Testament, we don't see any animal sacrifices anymore, right? They happen continuously from the very beginning all the way until Jesus' death and resurrection. Why did it change with the church? Because Jesus is the one final permanent, permanent sacrifice that brings full and final justification. We're not justified by eating a special diet, but rather Jesus is the perfect and satisfying food and drink that purifies us, that cleanses us, that removes our hunger and thirst and brings us eternal life. Think of Jesus speaking in John 4 to, to the woman, and, and he shares that if, if you drink of the water I give you, you'll never thirst again. Or Jesus calling himself the bread of life. If you, if you eat of me, you'll never be hungry again. Or Jesus speaking about communion, drinking the bread and the wine that symbi- symbolizes his body, which symbolizes his, uh, his broken uh, body on the cross, his shed blood on the cross. Christians are not justified by doing ceremonial laws or cultic rituals <clears throat> that make us justified, but rather Jesus is the ultimate high priest. He's the ultimate one who intercedes for us in the way that these ceremonies and rituals kind of did in the law. Jesus fulfills the ceremonial rituals in himself, and it's through Jesus, not through these laws, not through these rituals, not through these ceremonies, it's through Jesus that we are brought close to God. So not only does Jesus fulfill the law, but the law points to our need for Jesus. When we look at the law, we see that we actually can't do that. Or we can for just a little bit, but it doesn't work. We have to keep going back and washing our hands again and again. We have to keep going back and sacrificing more and more animals. So the law points ahead for something even better than the law. Our need for Jesus. This doctrine, this truth of justification by faith alone, sometimes we call different doctrines or different truths of the Bible, open-handed and closed-handed. So open-handed, things that Christians can disagree on, or, or we even as, tr- even as members can disagree on, things about, like, like I said, how, how the end times might play out, or how exactly Christians should live in this world, or how exactly we should uh, study the Bible, or, or, or things like that. And we have closed-handed issues that we, we don't disagree on, that we have to be unified in. Things like Jesus is God, and Jesus did raised from the grave. Justification by faith alone, not through works, is one of those core, close-handed doctrines. It's not optional. It's It's the heart of the gospel. It's the heart of the good news. Again, Martin Luther writes about this doctrine, justification by faith alone. And he says, this is this doctrine is the truth on which the church stands or falls. It's not something different denominations or different churches can kind of disagree on. But he says, a church falls, crumbles, ceases to be a church if it says you can earn salvation by doing the law, by working hard, by being a good person. And then his commentary on this book, uh, the book of Galatians, Martin Luther writes, most necessary is it, this doctrine of justification through faith, most necessary it is, therefore, that we should know this article well, teach it to others, and beat it into their heads continually. John Calvin, another one of the reformers, writes about justification. He calls it the hinge on which everything turns. So this powerful, beautiful, 
And central truth was not just made up. As, as I'm talking, and you may be thinking this, as I was studying this, I was, this was one of my thoughts. I thought, uh, this, this doctrine sure sounds like it's made up if the person that's pushing it, the person that's teaching it, writing about it, is not a very good person, is a really weak person, right? So, so if you think about it, so bear with me as I kind of walk you through my, my thoughts as I was studying this. I was thinking, well, if there's a guy who's really bad at keeping the law, that can't follow it at all, always messes up, always sins, has such, you know, so much sin and, and depravity and brokenness in his life, then maybe he might think, who I'm going to make up a new doctrine that says, it really doesn't matter about all that other stuff. There's something new that came with Jesus where all you have to do is just trust in him and all that following the law thing goes away. So, so maybe, I'm just saying, maybe if Paul, the, the teacher of this doctrine over and over again, if that was him, a guy that just sucked at following the law, if that's who he was, it maybe would make sense that this was made up or, or kind of convenient that the guy who can't follow the law says, hey guys, we don't have to anymore. I just got a revelation from Jesus. But that's actually not the case at all. So let's look at who this guy was, this, this Paul, the guy that wrote and all over his New Testament letters tirelessly teaches about justification through faith alone. In another one of his uh, letters, Paul writes to uh, a different church in Philippi, and he describes who he is. He kind of like takes out his resume and says, this is how, this is how good I am under the law. As, as, a, as a Jewish leader, this is how great I was. In Philippians 3, Paul says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh or thinks that they're confident in their, their hard work in keeping the law, I have more, he says. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I was of the people of Israel. I was, I was of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee. So regarding the law, regarding God's laws, I, I didn't just know them and do them. I was a teacher. I went to like Pharisee seminary and got, you know, A pluses the whole time. As to zeal, how passionate was I? We, we really value being passionate here in uh, America, don't we? And uh, as for passion, Paul argues, as for zeal, I persecuted the church. I thought that the church was so bad for God that I went to such lengths that I was rounding up people and throwing them in prison. I was tearing families apart. I was even murdering people. That's how passionate I was about God. And then he says, as to righteousness under the law, as to following the Ten Commandments and the ceremonial and food and cultic laws, I was blameless. So not a guy that couldn't keep the law. Actually, a guy that could keep the law really well. So well that he said, go ask my, my seminary colleagues if they can tell you one time that I didn't follow the law perfectly. So Paul didn't make up this doctrine, but rather it's true. And we're going to see how this doctrine changes this guy from super arrogant, I can do it all by myself. Just look, I have done it all by myself. This doctrine that changes him from that into someone completely different. If it was all about karma, Paul would win. But it's not. Listen to what Paul says just a few verses later. Speaking of his resume, speaking of how well he followed the law. Indeed, I count everything as loss. 
I count all those good things as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. That word rubbish means a steaming pile of crap. Which is both offensive and disgusting, right? He's saying, all my good deeds, the way that I follow the law, blamelessly, how, how do I value that? How much is it worth? It's worth the most disgusting and offensive thing you can think of. And the reason he does that, he says, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, parentheses, you could say, even though under the law I was blameless, even though I, I actually seemed to follow it perfectly, but later he says he really didn't, but even though uh, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but a righteousness which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul continues on in, in our passage. So verse 17, he continues, he says, But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ in a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. Kind of some confusing verses here. Essentially, Paul's saying, I, once I'm saved apart from the law, I'm not going to go back to the law to stay saved. So if I'm going to be justified, if I'm going to be declared innocent, get my sins forgiven through faith alone, I'm not going to run back to the law. That could never do that in the first place. I'm going to stay in grace. Tim Keller helps unpack these verses. He writes, speaking of Paul, it was as Paul tried to obey the law that he realized that he simply couldn't. Paul is saying, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. And I would not have known how unable I am to keep the law except through the law. It was by really listening to the law that Paul saw he needed a Savior. When we try to obey God before we're accepted by him, before we know that we're accepted by him, we're really not loving God at all. We're, all, all those all those actions are tainted in, in our selfishness and our what we get out of it, right? So, so we do good things so that God will, will accept us, so that God will love us. But when we realize we're not able to earn our justification, when we, when we realize we can't earn our salvation and that we are truly accepted in him, then we actually can love him. And our actions can be, can be pure rather than just selfish. Similarly, it's not perfect analogy, but similarly, when, when I was wanting my wife Amy to date me, right? I was, I was on my best behavior. The vast majority, if not all of my actions, the motives behind my actions were, were essentially selfish. I wanted her to accept me. I wanted her to want me. I wanted her to be my girlfriend and then later my wife. So before I knew I was accepted, my, my motivation for doing good deeds towards her was not actually pure. It was actually selfish. But then, when we were married, when I knew I was accepted by her, I was then free to actually love her without selfish motives because I knew my acceptance by her wasn't going to change. Obviously, analogies fail and 
It's not perfect, but it's a very tangible way that we can see this play out. All right, let's continue. Last few verses. Paul ends this this, uh, argument, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for for no purpose. So Paul continues his, his argument here. He says, in our justification, in our salvation, this is what's happening to us. We have been crucified with Christ. He says three different ways. I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. It's not me that live. I have died to the law. So as we are justified, as we are saved, this is what's happening to our old nature, our old self. Many of you, as, as you're reading this, probably thought, hey, this sounds a lot like Jesus before his death and resurrection when he was speaking to the disciples about the cost of, of following him. You might say it reminds me of John 9 where, where Jesus tells his disciples that, hey, I'm so much more than just a teacher. I'm a savior. I'm not just going to give you a couple good ideas and you follow them and you're going to be okay. But rather, following me Jesus says, it's going to cost you so much more. It's going to actually cost you your life. Following Jesus meant following him all the way to our own executions as well. Following Jesus would mean the need for resurrection. Resurrection would have to happen because following Jesus would result in, in, in dying to our old self, if not also physically dying. So it would require resurrection following jesus would mean that we'd actually would actually be able to have our lives saved jesus says here in in luke 9 he tells the disciples if anyone would come after me let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me for whoever would save his life will lose it but whoever lose his life for my sake will save it elizabeth elizabeth elliot also writes about this she says to be a follower of the crucified be a follower of Jesus who was crucified. Me and sooner or later, a personal encounter with the cross. And the cross always entails loss. So part of our justification is we, we die to our old self, our old sinful nature. We, like Peter talked about earlier, we die to this, this old self, this old Spencer, this old nature that was a slave to his sins that never had any hope of not being a prisoner by them, who never had any hope of walking away from them, but always had to return. We die to that old self. We die to being under the curse of sin. We die to being under the curse of even death. And in a lesser way, but still important way, we die to our own preferences, our own agendas, our own will. Again, the old Spencer before he knew he was accepted, has to be selfish. Has to say, well, what about my thoughts? What about my ideas? What about my rights? What about my preferences? But when I'm justified, when I'm in Christ, that old selfish, prideful, self-focused Spencer dies, and now I actually, we actually, are able to say, well, it doesn't really matter that much about what I want or even what I need. 
But just like Jesus promised us, following him, receiving him as our Savior, it's not just a death sentence, although in some ways it is, but it is also the only way for us to truly receive life, life now and ultimate and eternal life as well. I have not just been crucified with Christ, which I have. I have not only died to my former nature, which I have, but I have also been raised with Christ. Christ lives in me now. I live to God. All three phrases we see in our passage today. Just recently at, uh, we had a baptism. One of our own people, uh, Sky Thompson, in her testimony, spoke exactly of this doctrine right here in her story. She says, God saved me while I was still a sinner, and by his grace I am made new. Baptism is a reflection of what is happening to my soul. I am putting my sin and my old ways to death as I go under the water and rising up out of the water, washed, clean from my sins, holy, and made new by God. So those of us who have been baptized in this room, especially uh, by immersion in, in, in water, symbolically we're showing what's happened in our lives, what's happened in our justification. Romans 3 says, sorry, Romans 6, 3 through 4 says the same thing that, that Sky said. Speaking to Christians, so we could say this to Hiawatha Church, we could say this to each other, do you not, or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Our old sinful nature was killed. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Just as Christ was resurrected, just as Christ was raised from the dead, we are raised with him. Spiritually, right now, he lives in us as well as eternally. When, when, when Christ returns, we will physically be resurrected just like he was. Just a few things as, as we close for today. So what does this mean for us? First thing, Hiawatha, stop believing as though you're justified by works of the law. Or maybe, maybe even more importantly, stop believing that you stay justified. Stop believing that you stay saved. The only way you stay saved is by following works of the law, including good things that Christians are called to do. You're not stay, you don't stay saved by reading your Bible every day and then lose your salvation if you stop. That's salvation by works. That's justification by works. That's a lie. That's a false doctrine. Our passage today ended with verse 20 with Paul saying, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Or we could flip that, say that in the positive way, Christ did die for something. He didn't die for no reason. He did die for something. Righteousness and justification that comes apart from the law, because it can't come from the law. It can only come through God's grace. Secondly, believe that if, if you are in Christ, believe that you truly are innocent and purified and cleansed and made righteous through faith in Jesus Christ. That's your new identity. That's what God the Father sees when he looks at you. He doesn't see the self-hatred you have for, for yourself. He doesn't see all the slanderous things you're saying about people. He doesn't see how you've cheated on your spouse or cheated on your taxes or the affair that you've had or countless other sins. Do you really believe 
this doctrine, do you really believe that you are made righteous in Christ, that you are truly forgiven? Romans 8, 1 says, therefore there's no condemnation. You're not condemned anymore. You're not guilty anymore if you are in Christ Jesus. Believe that. That takes, that takes hard work. That takes telling yourself over and over again that truth. That takes reminding each other, reminding your classmates, your friends, your spouses, people in your community groups. You might feel like you're condemned. You might feel like you're guilty. You might feel like you're still dirty. But that's not true. It's not true, brother in Christ. It's not true, sister in Christ. There's no condemnation. There's no more guilt for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then finally, live out of that. Know you have been accepted by Christ if you put your faith in him. And then live with, with no longer selfish motives. Live no longer like you're trying to earn God's favor because you know you've been accepted. Live as though you've been risen with Christ and that the old, old sinful you is dead, has been crucified, has been buried. Live that like you really have been raised with Christ, that you're a new creation and that he is living in you right now. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this beautiful, powerful, life-changing, worldview-altering way that you describe our identity, the way that you describe the gospel and, and how you interact with us, how you love us, how you gave yourself for us, how you make us innocent by taking on all the guilt and all the punishment on yourself. We pray for those of us who have believed that, that we'd continue to believe that, that that would be deeper and deeper into our hearts and minds and, and change our lives, change the way we view ourselves, view other believers. Pray for those who haven't yet believed that, that that would be such great news to know that my past can be forgiven, that my past doesn't have to define me, doesn't make my identity anymore, but that I can start over, that I can be accepted, that I can be loved by the God of the universe. Pray that you would melt hearts of stone here this morning and help us all to believe that beautiful, powerful truth of justification that only comes through faith, not through works of the law, not through even good Christian uh, deeds. Pray this in your powerful, saving, purifying name, Jesus. Amen.